think uh, every solution is stronger when people with different perspectives come together to offer what that solution looks like. And so I would encourage advocates from across the country and the world to really think about what are some ways in which we can encourage not only refugee input, but refugee decision-making in, in uh, certain ways. What are practices that we can change and policies that are able to invite refugees into problem solving in our organizations? Hi, Ida. How are you doing today? Um, I, I'm doing great. I am so excited to be with you all um, and meet the heroes behind the podcast. Yes, we, we're really lucky to have you here. And uh, me and Isha can't wait for the conversation that we're about to have. I can imagine that it's going to be very impactful for our listeners. So my first question for you is a very general icebreaker question. What would you like to share about your personal story and background? I think the first thing that comes to mind is this question used to be something that I was really scared about because it's something I had tried to hide for a really long time. I think um, assimilation is typically something that is really important to people and being able to belong in communities in a way that's blended. But more recently, integration is something that has been celebrated, which is this idea that we can celebrate differences and and really think about different cultures in a way that really supports American communities in a really powerful way. And so thinking through that question, I think I love to share that um, I'm a war survivor. I'm somebody who has survived a, a genocide, somebody who's experienced friends and family, um, other me due to political situations, somebody who came to the United States as a refugee and ended up uh, being homeless for some time, worked every job from cherry picker to cashier to Western Union agent to, you know, to finally being able to go to school and then to college and then working you know, finally in the United States and different jobs that I was excited about. But I think my story is one that's uh, sadly not unique. As your podcast shows, it's a story that people across the world experience on every continent, except I think Antarctica and Australia. And so uh, I am in a community of people who are forcibly displaced. And um, sadly, there's many of us. Yeah, no, that was a great answer and a great introduction to a problem that our podcast wants to highlight and wants people to talk about more. I mean, that's literally the enti- you know entire purpose that we're creating podcasts to put out there for people. So just expanding on your question, can you tell our viewers a little bit about your life maybe before displacement or where you're originally from? Yeah, of course. So I am from former Yugoslavia. And a lot of people mention 
uh, asked me kind of what particular country, but all of the countries of former Yugoslavia are part of my culture. So um, I mentioned former Yugoslavia for that reason. I speak the languages of those countries. Um, and so, um, and I mean, I read the newspapers from those countries now too. And so um, this is where I come from, even though it's no longer on a list of countries. I, um, before becoming a, a refugee, I was a kid that absolutely loved uh, to to play. I loved to cook with my grandmother. I uh, we actually had a very thriving childhood before the war. Um, my dad had his own architectural company, and so we were able to say, you know, I feel like having uh, dessert today. And my father would get us on a plane uh, that my godfather would fly, and we would go to Germany just to have dessert. That, that was the kind of lifestyle we had before the war because my dad really tried to do everything he could to make sure that uh, we had the opportunities. You know, that was his main goal um, for us to be able to have opportunities and choices. And um, I had a fantastic childhood. I was able to, I was always outside. I was never at home. I played with my friends on the street and really enjoyed my childhood. Unfortunately, the war happened um, I was kind of born during conflict, um, but then uh, when war finally started to happen, it was impossible for people to be able to thrive. Um, and so our lifestyles changed completely. We went from being able to do those things to um, being not able to even find food um, in grocery stores. And also during that time, there were laws and policies that were implemented in my country to allow people to be discriminated against. And unfortunately, people like me were discriminated against um, in, our, in my family. Uh, we would um, stay up dressed up in our, in our, and sleep in the same bedroom, even though we had a huge home, uh, because we knew that it was marked with a red X uh, so that people could come and, and take that home from us. I think that because I grew up with wonderful father and family that taught me to that I'm no better uh, than anyone but I'm also no worse than anyone it helped me really be able to see the way in which political conflict can impact your interest and what you do I had wanted to be a um, neurosurgeon or a kind of astronaut or something related to physics when I was growing up, it was uh, some of my favorite things to think about and do. Um, I would watch surgeries on Discovery Channel with my sister, who's actually a medical doctor now. And I really enjoy that. But I think um, I had wanted to become an attorney, actually, after that experience in my country, because I always wanted to figure out how can there be laws that actively oppress people? And why don't we change those things so that never happens again? When I came to the U.S., um, I didn't have the opportunity to do fun things, really, because it was uh, the focus was on surviving and, 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 you know, thriving wasn't even an option. And following what my father had always taught me, this idea of building options and having opportunities, I just really tried to do that. But one of the things I really enjoyed doing is extreme sports, actually. Um, and extreme sports really reminded me of what it's like to push past fear. 
in my country, I had to push past fear all the time. So it became a really normal thing. In the U.S., I, I had to push past fear in a different way. But doing extreme sports is an interesting thing because what it does is, particularly in the example of hang gliding, you have this heavy hang glide on your shoulders. It's super heavy. You can barely hold it. It's so heavy. And then you're told that you have to run down this small, um, I don't know how you say this in English, but like a, a small road uh, that's maybe, you know, five or six feet long that's on the side of a cliff. And you're supposed to jump off of it with this heavy thing. And then just trust that it's going to lift you up and take you where you need to go. And so I remember that moment clearly because it's this moment where you have to decide, do I, do I jump in and do this? Um, do I push past fear and do it or do I not? And, um, and I did. I literally just looked down and had this heavy thing on my shoulders and pushed past fear. And I think that that's something that that my, all, all my extracurriculars are around, just pushing past fear uh, and, and doing it and having fun at the same time. There's this great moment right before you jump that where you tell yourself that um, I want to be the kind of person that approaches things with courage. And so that's kind of what I, what I do now for fun. I like to um, surround myself with people that I learn from. Um, I like to put myself in situations that are uncomfortable because I know that I'm learning. And so it's a, it's a privileged life because in America, uh, being able to make choices in how you live, uh, though it seems like a super basic thing, making choices, um, a lot of people don't have that choice. And so I'm privileged to be able to make choices. Thank you so much for sharing that story. And Thank you for telling us about your interest in extreme sports. Uh, that really um, fascinated me. And I'm really glad that you're able to find such a joy in it because I, I can guarantee you a very high sense of bravery is required to get enjoyment out of that sport. So just to follow up um, on your story, only if you're comfortable, can you tell us more about the conflict in uh, Yugoslovakia uh, and if there's ongoing conflict today and how our listeners could potentially help the citizens of Yugoslavia. Absolutely. In former uh, Yugoslavia, one of the things that was really difficult to uh, really understand is the way in which that families um, that kind of blended families of different ethnicities uh, started to see each other differently because of polit political propaganda. There are so many people who were alienated during that conflict. Uh, essentially, during that time in former Yugoslavia in the 90s, one of the things that people really focused on was uh, othering each other based on ethnicity, race, uh, religion. And um, anybody who was not Serbian or Orthodox uh, was uh, to, to be mistreated, um, discriminated against, or killed. And so um, it was a very difficult situation for a lot of people. And there were mass atrocities that were committed during that time against people who were non-Serbs um, and people who uh, were not Orthodox, especially, um, and also very difficult for blended families who 
or uh, who shared those cultures. I think one of the most difficult pieces of that conflict was how entrenched um, it was in hate and how that hate, I strongly believe, uh, was really perpetrated by people at the top who wanted to preserve power. And there were some uh, studies done recently about what people thought about being together in former Yugoslavia and, and nearly 40%, uh, I, I believe it was 48% of people stated that they really loved the idea of being together and valuing each other. And I thought that, that was really amazing. But that conflict, I think, is a huge stain on that part of the world. Sadly, that part of the world in the Balkans has been under conflict for many, many, many centuries and years. It was under, depending on how far you go back, Slavs were slaves. And after that, they were the Mongol Empire, the Ottoman Empire, um, all the way up to 1912s. They were colonized and then they formed their own kingdom. And then there was World War I right on its land. And then there was World War II right on its land. So there was just a generational trauma of uh, extreme war <laughs> and survival um, that happened in the Balkans. At the same time, despite people calling, being familiar with that area to the term Balkanization, which means like to separate, to balkanize. People hate each other so much, they want to separate, which is so sad. That culture is so beautiful. Um, there is, uh, we have amazing food. And when I say we, the Balkans generally, so every uh, country of the former Yugoslavia and all the adjacent countries have beautiful food, great culture, amazing language, brilliant poetry, great um, traditional clothing and music and you know, we are at the center of the world. Um, and, and I mean that not as a, um, like the center of everything. Nobody knows about that area and cares. But um, in terms of geographically, we're at the center of, of things. Um, our culture is influenced by Africa, the Middle East, Asia, and Europe. And it's a really cool collection of identities that have come into that one place. And so it's so disappointing that it had ended up in actually uh, in separating uh, or, or that the term balkanization ended up meaning that. So um, I, I hope that that area learns to celebrate its culture in a way that uh, celebrates others and invites people to, to really celebrate how, how beautiful our world can be when we see each other for who we are. Thank you so much for that. So our next question for you uh, is about your professional career now. Uh, can you describe, like, I, I've seen your profile on Refugee Congress, your LinkedIn, and you're involved in a lot of initiatives. So if you could just describe um, your career and what you do. Yeah, of course. I started my career literally from executive assistant to a CEO, and it's something I'm really proud of. I worked so hard for every role I had. I literally had every role from beginning to end. There was no skipping, going back anywhere. And so um, I'm uh, one common thread across every single one of those roles is working towards social impact initiatives. And so it's something that was really important to me. I, I think that being able to, I, I don't want people who have my lived experience to 
uh, ever to be more of us. Um, having as less as people like me as possible is good. <laughs> Meaning we don't need to be creating more refugees. We don't need to be creating more people who are discriminated against or marginalized or it's just not something that needs to happen. And so my goal was always to prevent people from having similar experiences to me because in our modern world, we just don't need to have that. So um, most recently, I partnered with some amazing people to co-found Advancing Agency. And we're one of the world's only uh, refugee-led, refugee-owned, and refugee-supporting consulting providers and trainers. And so it's been super exciting to be able to do that and work with um, people across the world and in industries and borders to be able to do some really cool stuff all around social impact. And so also I started Impact Investments Fund, whose goal is to um, advance a really ethical business performance. And one of the things that you'll notice that's similar between those two things, they're all really trying to focus on solving uh, world issues. And when we solve world issues, we also solve creating refugees. Um, because political conflicts uh, create refugees. And so those are my two main roles. Um, I had an amazing privilege of being elected as a Refugee Congress delegate. And um, it, Refugee Congress is, is a national nonpartisan organization that is built by former refugees. It's an um, asylum seekers and other vulnerable uh, migrants. And the goal is to really prevent to promote the well-being and dignity of all people. And so it's been such an honor to, to serve as a Refugee Congress delegate and also be a part of a community among other refugees. Um, that's something that's really unique and beautiful. Those are kind of my three main roles um, that I really focused on, and I'm so excited to be able to do that. I actually have just a follow-up question. So I've had the of privilege of interviewing um, a few other Refugee Congress delegates and I was wondering if you could talk about maybe, you know, being in the Refugee Congress, you're able to be part of a network of refugee activists. Is there like a particular partnership or connection you've made with another refugee delegate that has been really impactful to you and your work? Yeah, of course. You know, one of the, there are two Refugee Congress delegates that uh, we, so three of us connected to identify what are some opportunities to create solutions in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, and so we, we met uh, with an attorney who had a landmark case. His name is uh, Terry Collinsworth, who, uh, whose goal is to really prevent the mining, uh, unethical mining and use of child slavery in, in the DRC. Um, and so being able to partner and, and do that has been amazing. Also, um, an amazing uh, former refugee and advocate, Bess Mallory, also, and I have partnered around uh, storytelling. She is a uh, founder of Weepkills, a nonprofit that's based in Jacksonville, Florida, whose focus is to really have refugees lead their stories and contribute to solutions uh, around the world. And so she's uh, an amazing person and it's such a privilege and honor to be, to be collaborating with that one staff. And also Nira, who is with We're All America, and they started an amazing um, uh, initiative called Opportunity for All Table, which is an initiative whose goal is to promote um, refugee decision making in, in, in the U.S. And so 
it's it's super exciting to be able to participate in those efforts and to partner with amazing people who who are doing really great work to be able to create spaces for refugees to have an equal space um, in the U.S. and contribute to our communities. That is so amazing. It's like something that we, I think, like as podcast hosts, love to hear, number one. And then number two, we're so excited to share with our viewers that there are ongoing initiatives that are going on. There are people you know, refugees themselves who want to be represented, who have a voice to share, and then organizations that, you know, after listening to this podcast right now, you know, our viewers can go out and research and help and work with as well. I had a follow-up question to your professional life. Do you think that connecting refugeeism to business and consulting um, has been particularly difficult to do? Was it an initial hurdle that you had to overcome entering this space and starting this company that's refugee-owned, refugee-run? Was that a hurdle or did you see it as a connecting factor with businesses and other organizations around the world? Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for asking that question. One thing that I would note is a refugeeism kind of as a term is an interesting one. And as a, a a refugee and as a non-native um, English speaker, I'm really attuned to words and their meaning. Isms tend to be kind of terms that uh, are descriptive and they often suggest that something is a choice. So for example, racism, that's if people choose to be racist or, or, or things like that. It, isms also bring things at an individual level rather than because they they imply attitudes and behaviors. And so that can also distract, distract from those low, uh, larger social, cultural, and um, historical factors that contribute to inequities and injustices. And so I wonder if there's a different term we can use instead of refugeeism to denote, that doesn't denote perhaps, uh, or imply just even tangentially that being a refugee is a choice or, or a situation or a problem. I wonder what can, what term can we use together uh, that can be different? Could we use displacement? Or With, yeah. people who were forcibly displaced? Yeah. Maybe individuals awesome. who are forcibly displaced. Thank you for correcting us. I think that's a great like correction that I, I'm not technically a native English speaker, but I, you know, it's one of my first languages and it's something that I don't even think about, but is so important to note. So Rewording that question, do you think that connecting your forced displacement to business consulting the financial world was initially a hurdle for you? Or did you see it more as a connecting factor to uh, communicate with other organizations? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. That's such a beautiful question, actually. I, I, I think in the beginning, I didn't connect being a refugee or wanting to uh, think through what working with refugees and being refugee supporting could look like. Um, my goal in being, in starting something different was focus around values. And those values are really thinking about how we measure worthiness. I, I think a lot of the times we, for example, we focus on refugee storytelling, which is incredibly important. Combined with that is also refugee decision-making. And I think uh, oftentimes 
refugees can be seen as victims, as well as people who couldn't, to give you an example, there was somebody that I was, that was um, wanting to hire me for this amazing role. She had tried to hire for that position for a year and a half. And one of the things she had mentioned to me was, well, you know, before the war, you had an excellent childhood. So you have that base, but also because you went through war, you have that experience that's really needed for this position. And so you're not as damaged. And, you know, what was, uh, what was interesting to me was this idea of being damaged, that it's impossible for you to have picked up um, and thrived after a situation like that. So being uh, this value of worthiness was really important. At Advancing Agency, one of the things that we collected around was this idea of valuing people who are closest to the problem as sources of solutions. And so I think it's also something that we really need to examine as a society, like who is making decisions around worthiness? Like, I don't think that I should be hired because I'm perceived as less damaged and, uh, or that I'm a, or that I'm considered a victim of something or what I always try to tell people is we're refugee-owned, refugee-led, and refugee-supporting. What's important about that is that we're able to, in addition to the expertise lens that we are able to share with people that comes from our professional experience, we also have a lens that offers uh, a different perspective um, and combines these traditional approaches with something new and different um, that other organizations don't have. I'm sad to say, but 95% of some of our largest resettlement organizations are not led with people with displace, with experience with displacement, firsthand experience with displacement. And I think that's really difficult because, uh, for example, federal funding tells us that when refugees come to the U.S., they should get a job within th- three months and then, you know, they're on their way, they're good to go. Every refugee, and I say every refugee with a grain of salt, of course, but many refugees know that that's not going to work. When you come from, in my situation, I had come to the United States on a plane with one little bag and my sister, no money, nothing to my name. I had left my parents with bombs falling um, in my uh, home. I had experienced and seen people die in front of me and now when I come to the United States, it's the expectation that I learn a new language, which I didn't speak at the time, and try to find a job and do all of these things. And so I think that we're not really valuing people and what they bring to the table. There is um, the Global Talent Competitiveness did a study that talked about how much we lose as an economy um, per year because we're not valuing people who are refugees. And it's a $160 billion loss. Um, if we all value helping America thrive, why would we want to lose $160 billion? Because we don't see people who are marginalized and refugees as worthy. That makes absolutely no sense. And so it was very difficult to be honest, to, to speak from that identity uh, and be considered an expert. In fact, I was asked to be on a panel and they mentioned, we're going to invite a policy expert and you with lived experience. And I'm thinking, do you know that I'm also a policy expert? (laughs) And so um, 
one of the things, and that actually brings a lot of value to the conversation is you have somebody who's also a policy expert and has lived experience. And when you combine those two things, you're able to have an entirely new perspective on things. I'm not the only one that has that perspective. There are many unheard voices, and I say unheard um, because they have a voice. We just need to turn it up, which is what you guys are doing. And um, uh, there's so many people who are doing that. Um, so it was absolutely difficult. In fact, that's not on our website. It's in a small piece of our website because uh, there is a, uh, that notes the this acknowledgement that we had received. And um, but it's not exploded on our website, meaning um, because we know that uh, people have a strong bias against seeing people with lived experience as experts and equal to what the story has to offer. I think a follow-up question to that great, great answer is how do you think we can encourage individuals who have experienced forced displacement to get involved in these initiatives, to share, to share their voices, to feel comfortable telling their stories and, you know, really sharing their opinions, speaking their truths and talking about what they're passionate about, no matter what field that's in. How can we as advocates and then other people who have experienced forced displacements become involved? And how would you see that relationship forming? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think Advocates and refugees um, who have become advocates, uh, combining and coming together is something that can really create best solutions. I think when I talk about refugee-led, uh, folks think that that means refugee only, right? Um, and refugee-led actually just means that refugees are able to guide what the conversation looks like. But I think uh, every solution is stronger when people with different perspectives come together to offer what that solution looks like. And so I would encourage advocates from across the country and the world to really think about what are some ways in which we can encourage not only refugee input, but refugee decision-making in, in uh, certain ways. What are practices that we can change and policies that are able to invite refugees into problem solving in our organizations. And then separately from that, refugees who have, or asylees or other people who are um, displaced, I think I would invite them to think about what they're able to bring through their story. What change do they want to um, impact with their story? I never felt comfortable sharing my story until I went into a room and was asked a question where I had to be honest. And I honestly shared what my background was. And I lifted up my head and realized that all these young people in the room were crying. And I wondered why that was the case. And I realized that it was the first time they had seen somebody who they identified with being able to do these things that were successful. And then from then on, I felt like it was my obligation to share my story. And so though there's discomfort in sharing it, what I've always relied upon is finding people that I trust to steward that story. When I was looking for a woman to help my sister and I on a plane when we first came to the U.S., there was a, a journalist who reached out to me, and I would always say no uh, to being public about something like that, but he was a refugee. 
And he explained to me how he'd want to talk about the story and he wrote that story. Refugees International helped spread that story as well. And that was a trusted group that we were in a community together that valued Refugee Voice um, and Refugee Congress and others who participated in sharing that. So I suggest uh, people who are displaced to join these amazing initiatives like Refugee Congress, uh, Refugee Advocacy Lab, the Refugee Storytelling Telling Collective, the Weave Tales, and uh, the Opportunity for All Table and, and really surround themselves with people who are members of their community. It's a really powerful thing. Uh, refugees really, those communities are difficult to find. And so being able to enter a room with people who have had similar experiences to you can be really empowering and help you own your voice and tell your story. Um, so I think working together um, is the best way to accomplish perfect solutions. Thank you so much for that. Um, this is more related to your company called Advancing Agency. So um, as I mentioned before, I've taken the time to look through your LinkedIn profile. And um, the description of Advanced Agency um, states that it's uh, women, people of color, immigrants, LGBTQ+, and refugee-led. So um, you mentioned earlier the significance of having a company or organization that's refugee-led. Like, what do you think the importance is of having all of these other, you know, identities represented in the leadership of uh, of the company that you're in? Yeah, of course. I think um, one of my friends um, some time ago and I had a conversation about what um, different identities, uh, why different identities and, and groups form and what are those touch points between those identities that people find value in? And one of the things he mentioned was pain sees pain. And I thought that was really interesting. And I think the reason why we, why I think we're able to excel is because we've focused around lifting up marginalized voices to the forefront. And it's why we're able to offer something that works better because we have marginalized voices combined with voices around the globe from different perspectives, different lived experiences, different religions, different languages. We are able to run multilingual sessions because we have people who speak different languages and that's a huge value add. We're able to run ethical workshops because we're able to have LGBTQ voices who are participating in building those workshops. We're able to write effective communication because there are multiple lenses. People who are Black, Brown, and, and Native American are looking through our communication and realizing that these things um, that you're saying are inviting people. Um, and that's something that's really important. That's why we are focused on building in, an inclusive culture because I strongly believe and we all strongly believe it's a huge value of ours that when people come together and have an equal voice at the table we actually have a distributed decision making framework so I'm not like a leader uh, in the organization we have a distributed decision making framework so I'm not a final decision maker everybody um it comes together to make decisions. 
And so we're not just a, a diverse uh, organization in name only. We also distribute power through the organization to ensure that there are checks and balances uh, in order for us to be able to provide ethical consulting to people that really advances the root cause to the problem. Because if we really want to address the root cause of problems that people come to us with, people who are closest to the problem, which are people who are marginalized and people who receive services of the nonprofits and businesses that we work with, are able to lend a new perspective. We also have young people as young as 12 who participated on projects with us. Because if we're talking about youth development, we're going to have a youth on our consulting team. And so um, I think that's really important thing to acknowledge the lenses that we're missing in the room always and lift up the voices that are alienated from other tables. Can you quickly um, talk more about the youth involvement in your projects? Like, how do you, how do you, like, you know, ask them to help out or what's the process of that? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, what comes to mind actually is, if, if you don't mind me sharing, um, but actually it's this particular example that I think is really important, which is, and it's something that I actually wrote a, a publication on, it's youth-led participatory action research. And, you know, I think we alienate young people a lot from conversations that have to do with young people. And I think that's absolutely, um, it, it doesn't make any sense. And so um, the, the focus was to um, equip young people with being able to run uh, focus groups and workshops. And through that, yield the answers that um, different groups were asking for, particularly related to youth development and health. What was interesting is, when adults uh, led workshops, they had different answers to focus groups and interviews. When youth led the workshop, uh, they had totally different answers as well. But the difference in the answers was that when youth led the workshop, uh, they were able to phrase the questions and the answers in the focus groups and the interviews in a way that spoke to the young people that were there. And the answers that were yielded were much more effective in addressing the root cause. They were authentic and open and clear. And so not only that, but also the youth themselves actually looked through the surveys and the focus groups and highlighted the most important things that were parts of those focus groups and surveys. So they also did data analysis. And I think that that's a really incredible piece. I don't have the lens. I, I was a young person myself once. I know what it's like to be a young person and I have that experience. I will never understand what it's like to be a young person today. Um, and so I think being able to uh, ensure that we're always checking the lenses that we're missing from the problems we're trying to solve is incredibly important. And so being able to see such a clear cut example of like, look at the answers that were totally ineffective that the initial workshop uh, yielded from adults. Also, not many people showed up. When young people started to get involved in, in that, they thought about different incentives and they thought about, thought about different ways and outreach that they could do that we had never thought about. And so um, I think our value is to include people with different lenses to solve problems in an equal way. Um, and so uh, I, I also think it's about power. I think a lot of people and organizations 
don't include people of different lenses in their decision making because they want to maintain power. And I think if we are if we give up power to people who are closest to the problem, we're actually going to be able to finally solve them. Thank you so much for that. Um, so uh, we're nearing the end of our interview, and Isha, feel free to ask any follow up questions that you may have had. But um, my question for you right now is how can how can our podcast Seeking Refuge help out in any of your initiatives? or um, in any, like, you know, issue, uh, international or national, that, you know, you believe need needs more support? You know, it's interesting. I feel like you're doing the most critical thing, which is um, lifting up the voices of people with uh, experience with displacement. I also think that the way in which you are running the podcast itself is a really powerful thing because you've allowed me to look through what are some questions that you're asking and provide feedback. And I think that's exactly, you're modeling the values of of the workshop, um, of the workshop, of the podcast, sorry. I was just thinking about a workshop that we're doing later today, so I apologize. But um, you're really thinking through, like you're following those values through on the back end of the workshop that people may not uh, get an opportunity to think about or see who are listening to the workshop. So living those values, of creating spaces for those voices, I think it's really important to keep on doing that. Awesome. When you asked that question, my first thought was, well, no, how can I help? (laughs) How can I help spread the podcast um, and share with people? Because I think it provides huge value. If Mackenzie Scott is listening, can she please donate to Refugee Congress uh, so that Refugee Congress um, um, can uh, support refugee voices across across the country in, in, um, in, in their initiatives and advocacy. And also, I think another way is to be able to share the resources that I shared for refugees to get connected to the communities that can help them in their advocacy efforts um, and their sense of belonging, but also um, some resources for advocates uh, who are interested in finding ways to support refugees in a way that's strengths-based. And so um, I'm happy to share those things with you on on both ends um, because that partnership is important. I also think that uh, one of the lenses that the podcast is offering that I think is wonderful too is people learning about different issues. I think one of the things that would be so helpful is if there was also an opportunity for people to learn about global conflicts and the causes for refugee displacement, if there were tools for people to be able to learn about what's happening across the globe in a way that's not kind of um, American focused. And, and I mean that because there are many newspapers, newspaper outlets and resources that are written by folks who are not American journalists who share about uh, some really great perspectives around the globe that can help people get informed about uh, issues that cause displacement. Um, So if there's a way to kind of connect that, I have a feed running with all of the uh, different newspapers and my favorite journalists from different places, as well as ones I don't like, um, because it helps me always uh, feel that discomfort and learning, uh, because it's it's important to know what's going on. But also um, share the link for folks to uh, become uh, delegate for Refugee Congress, because 
um, we have the applications open in their uh, their states uh, where we don't have any delegates and building a wider community of people is awesome. That's kind of what comes to mind. Um, I can't think of anything else, but how can I help you? Thank you so much for that. The resources you mentioned that you'd be able to provide us on both ends. One, like, you know, initiative that our podcast is taking up, something that we've been doing in the past, but something that we really want to hammer in for upcoming uh, seasons is outreach. We want to uh, use our platform to get as much support for, you know, small refugee initiatives. Like, for example, um, I don't know if you know who Isaac James is. He's mm-hmm. another, yeah, he's another delegate. I was I had the amazing opportunity to interview him and when I asked that question like how can our listeners and how can our podcast support you he simply asked for snacks for his after school program and so now our podcast team is coming up we're just coming up with ideas on how to like it's a, it's a small fundraising effort but we're taking it on the best we can so uh just like if you know any organizations or any like you know initiatives that need our help in that regard that would be really beneficial and any like you know links that you can provide us that can help support any of like our listeners who may have you know a refugee displaced person background um and are looking for resources so yeah that's that's probably the best way and obviously if you want to like you know let as many people know about our podcast the more listeners the more yeah yeah of course i I think it's oh sorry go ahead no, no, no. I was just, I was just saying Anusha summed it up so well. I think we have always tried to do this, but this season is really focusing in on building partnerships with the, you know, people that we're interviewing. And again, like asking how we can help them, but also having them help us and help our viewers. And I just, I wanted to say, this has been such a informative episode for me to be a part of just thinking even like about different words that I've been using in relation to, you know, displacement and the topic of refugees. I think it's, I think our viewers are going to have such a, such a great time listening to this. If I could ask, this is kind of an amorphous final, final question, but what do you want to leave our viewers with? What thoughts do you want our viewers to be thinking about after they listen to this podcast episode? You know, it's interesting. What comes to mind right away is this moment where I was on a panel where we were talking about welcoming um, refugees from Afghanistan. And there was a woman who uh, raised her hand and she said, you know, I I really don't know the best way to help. You know, I, I just don't want to hurt or offend anyone. And I don't have a lot of money and I don't really know what to do. Uh, but I want to help. And I mentioned to her that it's not about being perfect or wealthy. It's about just um, learning and welcoming and and, and being kind. Uh, and I told her about uh, Tracy, the woman that helped my sister and I when we first came to the U.S. That actually sparked us being able to find Tracy after me searching for her for over a decade. But one of the things that I want to leave people with is being in a refugee space working in the refugee space, volunteering in the refugee space, either as a person who is displaced or an advocate, it can become really difficult and draining. 
because the solutions are often really complicated things um, that in, in world issues and world problems, it almost seems really difficult to even think about when will this end. I think what I want people to leave with is this idea that it's not about trying to you know, find world peace because we need to take actions to get there, but that's a, something that maybe won't happen in our lifetime. The goal is that on the daily basis, that you do as much as you can to act in line with the values that are in service of solving these issues, in service of uh, really helping and being kind and welcoming people in a way that really helps you uh, approach the problem in a way that's human. I think we see refugees as statistics, as numbers, as tools for fundraising. But I think if on a daily basis, we can encourage people to be kind and to treat each other as human, we'll be able to finally come to a place where we're slowly and indirectly attacking that big bubble um, that's creating more and more refugees. And so I think that's one thing that I'd want to leave people with. It seems very um, normal and and something that people say often, uh, but I think sometimes we need to be really reminded and to constantly and daily anchor ourselves into that belief so that our actions can be driven from that value. Thank you so much, Ida. That was um, amazing. I really appreciate your time on this podcast. And truly, like Isha said, uh, every single piece of information, every single word that you've said here has been really impactful. And we cannot wait until we are able to share your voice with the Seeking Refuge community. And obviously, again, I'll send up that follow-up email so we can include links to the resources that you know of and just like any initiatives that may need our help. So yeah, thank you so much.